the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is, and welcome back this Wednesday, January 20th, 2021, as we head into Hour 2 of our daily three-hour tour. It's a delight to welcome to the show, first time, Ben Dominich. He is the publisher of The Federalist, which I think is critical reading every day, thefederalist.com. He also puts out a, an email every morning, The Transom. And as I said in my monologue, he wrote something this morning, which is one of the smartest things. I know it's an early part of the year. One of the smartest things, I think the smartest thing I've seen all year, talking about the two sides of the left or the leadership that the United States is in right now, one septuagenarian and, octo, and, oct, and octogenarian uh, clinging, white-knuckling it to the end of their careers, and the other, um, an out-of-touch young uh, technocratic social media uh, youth effort that um, has really no contextual uh, understanding of our politics or our history that is not only telling us what to think, but how to think. Ben, that that was really smart to put those two things together. Did I basically summarize it about right? Yes, you did, and it's good to be with you. I, you. I really do think that, you know, when you look at the scene today, I, I couldn't help but feel like it feels very temporary, mm -hmm. uh, very fragile and frail, and I'm not, like, saying something negative about Joe Biden's health. It's more just that it feels very temporary because you are looking at a leadership class that is entirely in its 70s and 80s. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, with the exception of Kamala Harris, who's obviously you know, vice president, you have, uh, you have Nancy Pelosi, you have the entire Democrat leadership in the House, you have Chuck Schumer, you have Mitch McConnell. None of these people were born after 1950. Right. And you kind of look at that and you say, well, at some point, power has to transition. And I think that what you're seeing is that power is transitioning, has transitioned, and it's to these rising, younger, corporatist uh, mavens. And, and they don't even need to be super young. I mean, I include Jeff Bezos in that number. Okay. Uh, but, you know, it's all these folks who really do believe that they've inherited the, the not just the authority, but the duty to change this country in the ways that they believe it ought to change, uh, because they think that Washington is just a bunch of gridlock that will never change anything, and so that they have to step into the gap. And we know uh, we're beginning to see what that looks like, uh, and it's not a very pretty picture. Ben, is the assault on conservative speech and social media resultant from a younger crowd in charge of this sort of stuff that has no understanding, historical, contextual, or otherwise, about the importance of things like the First Amendment, something that you and I grew up with and people older than us did, that they really – they grew up in a, in a college age and high school age period that this just wasn't a value that was important to them, I don't think, or it was taught as not important. I, I think that one of the things that you and I remember is uh, in ACLU right. that was dedicated to defending right. uh, what many people would consider hate speech. Right. Those were the hard cases. Right. Uh, instead, now we have a whole co cohort, a generation that has uh, taken over America's you know, human resources departments and the like, 
that no longer believes that there is a right to speak improperly. Um, and that means, you know, not just, you know, sort of uh, insulting people by misgendering them or something like that. It extends to ideological perspectives mm-hmm. as well, to a great degree. I mean, one of, the th- one of the executive orders that was signed today by President Biden uh, is one rolling back uh, the president's, uh, the previous president's uh, invocation against critical race theory mm-hmm. being something made mandatory in agencies of the federal government. And I think that you're only going to continue to see that kind of policy spread through the Department of Education and elsewhere. Uh, conservatives really need to rec- recognize that they are suffering the ill effects of decade after decade of terrible public education in America that has left people without any knowledge of the things that make America truly great. Uh, and and I think, unfortunately, a failure to appreciate how much those rights need to be defended, that's going to be something that I think is going to be a major issue in this administration. I do, too. And when Joe Biden said today that America boasts of the right to dissent peaceably, he said within the guardrails of our republic, that's where I really worry what he defines as what those guardrails are, because the critical race theory was one thing. I'll do you what I think is one better. I was shocked by this. You're familiar with the 1776 Commission. He got rid of that by executive order. Guess what else? If you go to the White House link that I tweeted out yesterday of their 1776 Commission report, that's down. They got rid of yep. the damn report. It's gone. <laughs> well, you can actually find it right now. We've reposted it Good. at Federalist. Good. If people want to seek it out and and I know some of the people who participated sure. in that. I know they're going to continue their work. But but that, to me, is a, an indication of the direction in which this is going. And one of the things that we're going to see happen, I think, is a really quick shift away from any kind of unity facade, uh, you know, like the kind of things that he was voicing today. By the way, there was, there was a simple thing that I thought uh, President Biden could have said that would have been a unifying statement. He could have thanked Vice President Pence for his work on Operation Warp Speed. Yeah which was, it's one of the most successful yeah, things yeah. we've seen. Instead, he's going to change the name of it, I think. Yes, and and it's the reason that we have uh, these vaccines in just an incredible amount of time. It, I mean, it took the last time that we had a novel virus like this uh, resulting in a vaccine, it took five years. Sure. Instead, we have it rolling out for people well ahead of expectations. And look, I, I just think that this is a situation where You pay lip service to the idea of unity. You have someone like Joe Biden, a popular, genial, nice guy, for the most part, politician who's up the front face of this. But behind the scenes, the people who are actually making the decisions, the bureaucrats and the the representatives and, uh, and members of the Senate on Capitol Hill, those people are leaning heavily into a much more radical agenda, one that seeks to, you know, again, in the words of of Ron Emanuel, never let a crisis go away. No, I think that's right. I think the personnel is typically to the wing of the primary. I think most of Trump's people were to his right. I think most of uh, Biden's people will be to his left. And that's why I don't put too much stock in the occasional story that I guess reporters and some columnists find interesting, saying, oh, the divide between the Democrats and the you know, the left wing of the party is is exploding. I, I don't put much stock in that. I I don't think there's yeah. much that AOC believes that won't be embraced, quite frankly, by 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 the Biden Harris administration. I just don't. But time will tell. Go ahead. I, I just think that one of the things that we need to keep in mind is 
you always have ways to keep the flanks of the party happy. Yeah. Uh, and I yeah. think that that's something that we're going to definitely see from this administration, which is they go down the road of the identity politics stuff. Um, the I mean, we'll obviously see uh, Mexico City and, and uh, go away this, uh, uh, this uh, the policy, obviously, uh, banning taxpayer funding of, of abortions abroad. That's going to go away this week. We sure. already know that from yeah. the Biden team. Yeah. Uh, you're going to see a bunch of steps along those lines that use the culture war side of things to keep progressives happy, even as they may not get what they want from the economic. Right. right. They may not get the tax hike they want, but they'll get the culture that they the cultural order. Exactly. I think that's exactly uh, said. Well said, Ben. I have uh, a couple more minutes with you. How do you answer the question you pose uh, provocative question you pose at the beginning of your post today. The central question Americans ought to consider as the old order returns is whether they are what they are seeing in their country is happening because it is stronger because it is weak. How do you answer that, Ben? I think the answer is that different factions feel different things. Um, the the political side is very weak. It's very frail. I mean, you can't look at the. Uh, the National Guard lining uh, the streets in Washington without feeling like, you know, hey, during the summer when people were getting, uh, you know, their businesses burned uh, and bodegas were were lighting up and people were getting robbed and and frankly killed, unfortunately, in a lot of those riots, uh, we didn't see this kind of deployment. In fact, even the suggestion of it was enough to uh, result in many people getting uh, the axe at the New York. New York Times for running uh, Senator Tom Cotton's right, op-ed right. on the subject. Right. The flip side is when uh, Washington, the seat of power, gets attacked, well, powerful people live there. Yeah. And so they bring in more troops than you have in Iraq and Afghanistan combined. Yeah. And to me, that's just a sign of a, a regime that feels frail. At the same time, you know, again, these this rising group of corporatist, mostly big tech, but not entirely big tech, uh, CEOs and the like, they really do feel like they have inherited this moment and that this is incumbent upon them uh, to act in lots of aggressive ways uh, to change America and the world, uh, even if, you know, Chuck Schumer, despite his promise, is unable to do so. And that's something that I think is is a contrast that's very dangerous for America because that's not the way we've been historically. Um, and And when it does start to go in that direction, there are a lot of negative things that can happen and people can start looking not to themselves, uh, but to powerful entities in our society uh, to make changes when we've really been a nation that has thrived on self-government. Yeah, that's right, Ben. Gosh, it's such a a provocative and important point. Well, thanks for some of your time on a busy day. Uh, It's great to have you as a first-time guest. I hope it can be a down payment. We can talk again soon. Absolutely. I'd be happy to. Great. Ben Dominich, thank you so much. Publisher of The Federalist. You want to check it out every day, thefederalist.com. And, of course, his uh, morning email, the Transom, a great subscription service as well. We'll be right back. Well, you can just you can really get into an 80s mood on a day like today, can't you? <laughs> Wishing the inauguration were Reagan's. <laughs> Wishing the music was all Eddie Money and Van Halen. <laughs> yeah. It, um, I did go to thefederalist.com, having just spoken to Ben, and um, he's, he did. They did put up the 1776 report on their website, so you can get it there as well. I tweeted out the new website for it. It's an incredible thing to consider that Joe Biden's White House deleted the 1776 report on the White House website 
the instant he became president. The instant. Really incredible. If you watched any of the um, inauguration, I'd love to hear some of what you thought. 602-508-0960 or what you're thinking on a day like today. Uh, David Marcus uh, wrote about the um, Amanda Gorman poem and said sometimes you have to look at the artists at these events to understand what the left really thinks. And you can find some of it in the poem The Hill We Climb that Amanda Gorman, the 22-year-old poet, read today at the inaugural. We've seen a force that would shatter our nation rather than share it, would destroy our country if it meant delaying democracy. And this effort very nearly succeeded. But while democracy can be periodically delayed, it can never be permanently defeated. She writes, we have braved the belly of the beast. That's that's what they think of us. We had we were in the last four years the belly of the beast. It's an easy day to get depressed on or even caught up in cynicism about all the encomiums to the kinds of things Chris Wallace said. What a great inaugural speech it will be. And I don't know when we'll next hear from Donald Trump um, or in what venue. There was, of course, some reporting that he was considering starting a third party. I don't put too much credence in that. Did he have a meeting with someone talking about possibilities of starting a third party? I'm sure. I'm sure. But I don't think that that's going to be very fruitful. It's a very hard thing to do. And I wonder, too, you know, what that party would look like. Would it take from what we have in the Republican Party now, the kind of leadership that so many of us like? The Crenshaws, the Jim Jordans, the Andy Biggses, the new cadre of Republicans that have been elected to office in November. So I I don't really see that being something he'll do. But I will say this. If he decides to give an interview to someone, uh, he won't have a problem doing it. He will be, of course, the most sought-after interview that anyone in the media would want to give. I would hope he'd does give it, though, to someone that doesn't edit him or hasn't been censorious or censoring of him. So I would hope it would be perhaps an hour with a Brett Bear or someone on Newsmax. There was a time we've now come to forget how often he did go to the media, how a car gets to it. So in a day, on a day, when it's easy to become cynical, let's not forget everything that the outgoing president did do. Howie Carr writes, thank you for restoring the U.S. as the world's leading producer of energy after your predecessor lectured us that we couldn't drill our way out of dependence. Thank you for the tax cuts for the middle class. Thank you for destroying genocidal 
ISIS, which your predecessor called Junior Varsity. Thank you for shutting off the endless flow of illegal immigrants at the southern border and the unending supply of MS-13 gangs, among other criminals, as well as the welfare dependents who are destabilizing American society. Thank you for calling out the endless hypocrisy of the media. Thank you for promoting economic policies that led to the lowest unemployment rates ever for blacks, Hispanics, Asians, Native Americans, and women, among others. Thank you for doing more to promote peace in the Middle East than all of your predecessors combined. Thank you for calling out and exposing the feckless Republicans in name only of your own party, like Mitt Romney, Kelly Ayotte, et al. Thank you for finally standing up to Red China and its predatory trade practices. Thanks for calling out Fox News for its duplicitous descent into terminal wokeness. Thank you for Operation Warp Speed, an amazing achievement for which you will never receive the appropriate credit. Thank you for pardoning all the persecuted victims of the Russian collusion hoax, among them Michael Flynn, Roger Stone. Thank you for eliminating Obamacare's individual mandate, which fined individuals for not buying health insurance they didn't want and couldn't afford. Thank you for taking more questions from almost always hostile reporters than all of the last three or four presidents combined. Thank you for getting the U.S. out of such foreign policy disasters as the Iran nuclear deal, the Paris Climate Accords, and the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Thank you for such a booming economy that 7 million people got off food stamp rolls. Well, well, it was a lot. It was a lot. I was talking to Jim... Ryan, my general manager before the show a little bit, that um, were it not for an inept CDC and the Wuhan virus, were it not for that, the economy that Donald Trump had presided over, given to us and presided over, was humming along so strongly and his impeachment so forgotten that there was very little doubt in a lot of minds that he wasn't going to be reelected. I, 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 th- I think the exploitation of the virus, the ineptitude of the CDC, it is, after all, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. It didn't control it, and it didn't prevent it. It's a massive failure, massive failure. Perhaps an inability to more sympathetically and consistently talk about it as well, attendant to this once-in-a-lifetime pandemic. But for all that, all of this would have been built on. All of this would have been built on. That's why I just simply don't think this Biden presidency is the mandate people, perhaps mostly around Biden, think it is. I just don't think it is. And I think it's going to be an enfeebled presidency led by an enfeebled man. Love your thoughts. 602-508-0960. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. 602 
1-800-259-9960. Let's go to Linda in Gilbert. Hi, Linda. Hi. Enjoy your show. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Um, so I um, was listening and uh, understand the new president uh, already started getting us financially in trouble by getting us back into the Paris climate accord. And I wondered if there were definite executive orders that cannot be reversed. Um, as a, and how do you how do you know which ones he's that Trump did that I approve of which, which will stand, and which ones can be reversed as easily as today with that? I think any executive order, by and large, is a general principle. Anything that is done by executive order can be undone by executive order. And uh, you can, of course, create your own executive orders as well. You don't have to just reverse previous executive orders. That's why, you know, ruling or governing by executive order is such a tenuous thing. It's only as good or as long-lasting as uh, the president or succeeding presidents believe or follow it. Now, can an executive order be ruled unconstitutional by the courts? Yes. That is really the only way to undo an executive order. The most famous one of those, I think, would be when Truman seized the steel mills back in the early 50s. Um, and But there's a, obviously a long history of, of, of subsequent um, challenges to executive orders that may be found unconstitutional, which is why I thought the Senate was so damn important to keep yeah. Because, yeah. you know, the judiciary flows through the Senate and you have a federal bench of federal judges and appellate court judges and obviously the Supreme Court, which um, which which is, uh, you know, appointed by the president, but approved of or denied by the United States Senate. Now, Donald Trump did an amazingly good job in his presidency of layering the federal court system with good conservative judges, really good ones, and not just at the Supreme Court level, but almost uh, something like almost 200 at the rest of the federal appellate and district court levels, including who he replaced Amy Coney Barrett with um, in the Seventh Circuit. So we may have we may have, you know, bought a little bit of time with some of this judiciary in looking at some of these things, but it requires someone to sue or an interest group or 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 a interested party to sue and work its way through the federal courts, but Congress can't um, can't really touch it. And uh, so, and and Joe have- Biden. And if Joe Biden has the will of Congress behind him, um, through an express or implied authorization, that's when an executive order is likely at its most uh, constitutional. And since Kamala Harris finally relinquished her Senate seat, no one's talking about that. Is that did I miss something? Is she will have to have a special election, and she and no one's talking about it because she's from California, and of course she'll be replaced by a Democrat. Or <laughs> uh, yeah, so um, the governor of California replaced replaced her, or is replacing her with the California Secretary of State, a man named Alex Padilla. I think I'm saying his name right, Padilla or Padilla. I think it's Padilla. I don't know much about him. Um, Obviously a Democrat. Um, So Padilla will fill out, um, I guess, the way California works, will fill out 
uh, her Senate seat until the next election in California, which is obviously next uh, next November, I guess. I guess that's how it works in California. I guess that's okay. how it works. And then he'll stand for stand for re-election if he wants to. I'm, I'm not fully certain how it works in California, but her seat has been filled is the long and short of it. And it'll fill out the rest of her term one way or the other. Don't know how long. And then it I does. have just a random observation, and I'll let the next caller talk. I, I was just so much. Our situation so reminds me of McCarthyism. Am I am I wrong in paralyzing and paralleling those two? I mean, no, I, I think like I, I think I think we've been living under a McCarthyist uh, regime from the Democrats for some years now. I think they have yeah. tainted us and tarred us uh, the way uh, much worse, quite frankly than Joe McCarthy did. Much worse. And it goes across industries. Um, If you don't think there's a blacklist in Hollywood, if you don't think there's a blacklist in academia, if you don't think there's a blacklist in journalism, if you don't think there's a blacklist in American culture for being a conservative, then then, um, I can't help you. But there is one. Just ask, ask. Just ask people who are conservatives who have tried to get jobs in those professions. They can't. They can't. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show, 602-508-0960. Rob's in surprise. Hi there, Rob. Hi, Seth. Um, you know, this is a very interesting day. I, I didn't pay any attention to the inauguration uh, for all the right reasons, but uh, what I did instead was I was clearing out some bookshelves so Mrs. Rob could put up some of her uh, trinkets that she hasn't had out uh, for several years. And I ran across a uh, an old 1993 copy of a Hoover Institution essay in public policy by Milton Friedman entitled Why Government is the Problem. And I could think of no more a perfect uh, day to discuss stuff like this uh, than today, Um, you know, because we obviously can expect government to get bigger, become more powerful, to be more influential, uh, to raise our taxes, raise gas, and all the things that, you know, are probably going to happen. What he really talks about, and I I'm about a 90% Milton Friedman fan. I, I still, and I know back in the past, he was more for legalization of, you know, drugs in general, which he thought, I thought incorrectly, that, you know, it wasn't going to be as, as big a problem as the war on drugs has uh, caused uh, and all that. But that's a different story. Anyway, the whole thing really has, it boils down to human nature. It has to do with self-interest. Uh, of individuals, whether they're in the private sector versus self-interest of those same individuals if they're in the government sector. And what happens, of course, in the private sector, you have somebody starts a business, and most businesses fail. Uh, And so those people will then, having invested so much money and time and effort, uh, can start another business or, you know, do something else that might work. But the result is, in the private sector, and this is all kind of common sense, and I'm sure you know this, you know, you, you get a result that's tangible, whereas if something fails in government, you know, again, out of self-interest, uh, instead of anything fails, usually a government agency is going to expand. And, you know, you can talk about why government's the problem. I mean, uh, Ben uh, from uh, Federalist. 
talking about the education problem. And, of course, that has a lot to do with uh, the, tier, the government involvement of uh, itself in education. And I think Friedman's talking both state and national and federal. I don't think it's just, you know, one federal thing. Um, the deterioration of the educational system uh, as next to the military being the largest socialist industry in the U.S., um, and the out, you know, the input money-wise is well back in '93 tripled. The output has been going down, and it's probably been going down even more since then because the schools keep experiencing the deterioration of learning, knowledge, and we've been through all this time. And then, of course, he talks about things like you know lawlessness, homelessness, family values, uh, you know, the agricultural policies where you pay people to grow crops that are going to be destroyed, but. The, the, the problem, one of the problems is he sees that, is, you know, the tragedy is because the government's been doing so many things that it ought not to be doing. It performs the functions it ought to be performing very badly. And I, I fear that, you know, the government is going to be in the next administration doing more things it ought not to be doing. Um, and it's going to perform those as badly as they always have. Um, then you have, you know, the interests of special interests, self-interests of special interests, if that makes sense. Um, and I think that's one of the things we're going to end up seeing is larger government, which is going to be doing more things. And obviously, you know, taxes are going to go up. Um, and, and all the things that we talk about when we talk about limited government um, and the realism that I think our side has over self-interest. And human nature, um, the, the self-interest of people in the government is going to lead them sort of to behave in a way that's totally different in the self-interest of, say, the private sector or the rest of us that aren't in government. And so, you know, it, it results basically in uh, we have governmental institutions that are uh, that we don't have any voice in that because they're run by bureaucrats, and he kind of lumped in, Friedman lumped in uh, elected officials because, in a sense, they're bureaucrats too, and in a sense because they have a self-interest to uh, keep getting reelected, they are going to end up thinking more like a bureaucrat. Thing. Yeah, that, if my memory serves, that's, that's, that's a big part of his thesis in mm -hmm. his essay that the government is the problem is that the government entities or agencies or uh, bureaucrats, if you will, that their natural consumer is themselves or their agency yes. and not what you think of as the private sector and the private sphere thinks of as their ideal consumer is a customer um, right isn't isn't that part yeah. of it so 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 in in effect. The performance of a government agency isn't subject to the um, to 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 the choice of a consumer, to the marketplace, to success, to the market. right, to success right. or failure. And if I'm also not mistaken, doesn't he make the point that for many years, um, a lot of the government agencies um, or government uh, uh, Jobs that jobs that we left with the government for many years, they were doing a good job and 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 particularly, say, in education, uh, it was going um, every, every generation, you know, did better than the one 
prior to it up until a point, up to a certain point. And that's that exactly changed, right? right? Because yeah. because of yeah. this bloat. Um, yeah. I think that's important to grasp. And I think the point you, uh, you, 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 you also mentioned, and I don't, I don't remember how he handled this. It's such an old essay that it doesn't, doesn't cover current um, examples. But the notion that when the government is doing things that it really wasn't set to, it loses the focus and attention on the things it is. So what kind of a thing is government supposed to do? Well, you would think help in a national disaster, uh, a hurricane, let's say. Or you would think um, a, a pandemic, let's say. And mm-hmm. we are so busy and focused on other things that we're left with um, caught often, too often, with, uh, mm-hmm. frankly, with our pants down on these things. We, we just aren't able to do the critical things because we are so focused on the frivolous. Well, that, that's true. And, and he also, and I think this is going to be even more uh, apparent in the near future, is the spending aspect where, um, you know, Friedman wasn't concerned so much about uh, deficits and debt. He was concerned that uh, government, and again, self-interest, bureaucracies, they're not, they don't have an interest in reducing spending. That's right. And as a result, we end up with this endless deficit, this endless debt, and increased spending. And hold, hold the thought. You, you can you can finish it on the other side if that's cool, Rob. Uh, hold. Sure, that's I got, cool. I, I got to hit the break. We'll be right back. Portions of this show are brought to you by Balance of Nature. Tens of thousands of vital nutrients from 100% whole food plants, fruits, and vegetables in a single daily dose of their vegetarian capsules. I take it every single day, and I get with my one daily dose, 10 servings of 31 different fruits and vegetables. It's my favorite product. Potent stuff. This time of year, you want to boost your immunity. You can do it easily with Balance of Nature. They have a great deal offering free shipping, 35% off any new preferred order of their fruits and veggies. veggies. Give them a call at 800 2468 or visit them at balanceofnature.com. Make sure to use discount code BALANCE to get that great deal. Rob was making a point about uh, really government bloat and government being the problem based on an old uh, uh, Milton Friedman essay. Rob, uh, feel free to finish the thought you were you were sharing right before the break. Well, I, I think uh, what I was probably talking about having to do with uh, government spending, um, those government spending, and, you know, I've read budgets when I was in D.C., you probably have too, and just, you know, the, the thousands of pages of different lines, all written very small for every single thing that gets funded. I was amazed and appalled at things that the government is, you know, spending taxpayer right. money on. right that has nothing to do with their real function. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, I, I can understand that, you know, some uh, government is necessary to a degree that it allows for national defense sure. and for personal safety. Um, I know he, uh, Friedman was talking about, you know, how come uh, we private enterprise can build so many cars and trucks that uh, everybody needs, but we, we can't keep the roads working uh, that are all controlled by government, again, state, local federal doesn't matter but i i think his real uh the, the thing that really hit me was you know and this is back in 93 after all the fall of soviet union and the newly independent states you know we're unable to practice what we preach because what has happened to the government structure in the u.s you know we'll 
increase free enterprise to all those newly freed communist countries. We tell them to privatize, 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 while we socialize, socialize. That's socialize. right. No, that's right. And, that's right. And I think that's an important point, and I think we're going to unfortunately see more of we that. We are. We and, are. You know, his, yeah, his conclusion, of course, you know, we the people must again rule, and that's what we were, I think, all hoping under, uh, hopefully, you know, a second... Uh, yeah, government of the of by and for the people. Um, yeah, and you know that's that's the other part of the Friedman thesis, which is yeah. what the interest of the people is is not always the interest of uh, the government. The interest right. of people in government is often against the interest of the people, as I recall Friedman putting it once. And this is exactly yeah. This is this is something we're gonna. It's a problem of both parties. By the way, that's really – people talk about the distinction of Donald Trump. That's one of the distinctions, maybe the main distinction of Donald Trump. He didn't have that interest. He didn't care about bureaucracy. didn't like it. Hated it. That's how we got a vaccine in less than a year. William Vogley coming up. Really interesting essay on whataboutism. We'll be right back. <laughs> 